everyone. Welcome to another episode in the Leading Safely podcast. This week, as we celebrate International Women's Day, I thought we should hear from a strong, fierce, independent woman who has held her own for more than two decades in very male-dominated, high-risk work environments. And so today you're going to hear me chat with the awesome Natalie Johnston. After completing her undergraduate studies and military flying training, Natalie became the Royal Australian Navy's first female pilot. Her naval career spanned 24 years and many different roles, including a helicopter pilot, a flying instructor, operations officer, commander, and respected leader. Natalie's strength, perseverance, and decision-making enabled her to survive and thrive in her naval career. Any naval helicopter pilot faces many challenges in a dynamic environment. Natalie dealt with the additional obstacle of being one of the only women in a male-dominated arena. These challenges only grew as she became a mother and faced some demanding personal decisions. Natalie is now a leadership consultant and uses her skills within the local community as a patrol captain and trainer at the local Surf Lifesaving Club and as an active member of Women in Aviation International Australian Chapter. So here is my chat with Natalie. Thank you for joining me on the Leading Safely podcast, Natalie. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks so much, Janine. I'm really looking forward to it. I love your podcast because it gives a really different perspective from each person about the topics and about safety and leadership. Awesome. Thanks. That is the aim of the podcast, hey, to share those different, you know, perspectives and insights along the way. And I've got some, yeah, interesting people lined up for this year as well, which is going to be great. Um, so as you know, I ask everyone the same four kind of health and yep. safety related questions. Uh, and the first one being, you know, that, that leadership space. So what do you think makes an effective leader when it comes to health and safety? I think it's a combination of um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to align with a position. Mm-hmm. So it's about that anybody could be a leader and it's about believing in what is safe and believing in keeping everybody safe and understanding where your limits are because if you can understand where you sit as an individual and what impacts your decisions, your actions, your behaviours, you can then show other people how it can impact theirs and if you are more intentional in your decision-making, particularly as a leader, you then have a massive impact on those people around you. So I think a big part of being an effective leader is understanding where you are when you're making those decisions about safety or you're directing someone because, you know, if you're making a decision or in a high-risk environment and you have to um, make a call to stop something from happening, if you're distracted or fatigued or not feeling yourself, that reaction might be slower. And if you're not in a position to make that decision, being a good leader is actually putting your hand up and saying, I'm not, I need someone else to look after this for me or watch my back. So I think from that is that understanding of self and understanding of your own limitations is a really important thing to be an effective leader, particularly in the health and safety space. Mm. Given your background in aviation, um, have you had some instances or a particular example you could perhaps share where that split second decision making, you know, kind of showed someone's leadership skills? Like, you know, thinking back into those critical moments, perhaps you might have witnessed or heard of in aviation potentially or anywhere else? I think in aviation, it happens a lot when it comes to dealing with emergencies. Yeah. Because if, and a lot of them, like if you look at a lot of the accidents um, that happen, um, a lot of them come back to the the people's performance in that space. And if they're not performing at their best, 
stress or not in that space, then they can't react as quickly or they make a suboptimal decision. So their leadership in that space isn't good. When things work well, like you look at a whole bunch of ones, like Hudson River is a good example, Um, uh, Qantas um, flight that they recovered from um, and even the Japan Airlines one, the recent one, because of the decision-making, the effectiveness of the people making in the team, knowing their processes and procedures, their ability to make it under pressure and and get those people out and get them to safety makes a difference because they were in a position where they were performing at their best. Um, and I think there's loads of examples and, like, there's probably loads of little examples in my military career that's happened that things have been stopped from being happening because someone has been at the, either the right place at the right time or actually seen and observed the environment and looked at the interactions and known what's going to happen next and put their stop in. Um, the thing is, is I find it hard within health and safety is that we never, or there's a very difficult to record when the things work well like that. When yeah. a leader does that job and recognises stuff early and that sort of stuff, we don't record that. Yeah. We only record it when it doesn't work. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I find it's a really interesting concept. But there's lots of things where there's things that have happened that the reaction, particularly in aviation, the reaction of the pilot or the flight teams or the crew on board have reduced the consequence of an accident or incident because of their effective decision-making and knowing where they are and being at their best when they made that decision and making intentional decisions based on the process. Mm, interesting. I always um, like, you know, try and force my four-year-old to make decisions quickly because I'm not a fan of people who, you know, like when you get to a menu, they'll sit there for three hours like, oh, I'm not really sure. It's like just make a call. Like it's really not. But I was just trying to think then like I would love to perhaps get some senior level pilots or some, you know, like leaders <laughs> in the aviation field, take them to an ice cream shop and be like, and time, you know, like, could you tell me how long it takes, you know, for you to pick an, pick an ice cream flavor and just time that? How long would it take them to do that? It'd be interesting from a decision-making perspective. Are they the same in real life as they are in the work <laughs> environment or? I think it comes down to then, uh, I mean, for me, it comes down to my time available. If I know yeah. I've got half an hour to choose, <laughs> I will consider I will consider every flavour and its value. <laughs> if I've only got like a few minutes and I'm in a hurry to go someone, I'll pick cool. a known favourite. So I'll okay. go with a known safety. You know, context you go with that. everything, hey? Yeah, it, it goes back to that context is everything. It goes back to what your experience is. So your experience yeah. and your knowledge and your understanding of yourself and the world around you enables you to make the decisions faster. Right. And understanding because all those pilots and those quick decisions are practice, they've gone through it, the procedures, they study, um, and in any environment they do that. You look at, you know, race car drivers and stuff, their, their reaction time is so fast because they're so practised at it. And I think sometimes we forget in health and safety we kind of do it and we don't practise as much as we probably should in when to react and how to make those decisions when when the time, you know, when time is short and you need to have that time critical stuff. Yeah, I know. That's actually something that's probably a hole in the market for you, hey? Like a fancy <laughs> that, something to do with decision making. <laughs> wonder how anyone could help with that space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's perfect. And then, you know, throughout your time, you know, in aviation and obviously in consulting, et cetera, you've come across, I'm sure, those people that have been very stuck in their ways. Um, I would love to know, you know, what strategies have you used or what tactics have you, you know, resorted to to kind of get people to kind of, you know, see things from a different perspective or move them along in their journey? Uh, I think it, it does depend on the person. Like sometimes you just need to 
think about way of describing it or talking to them that is you put themselves in their position with their background and their experience and then Mm -hmm. try and relate then what you've got to say or the thing you want to change their opinion on and say well but then if you think about it this way then this will happen and and be able to show that cause and effect response to it because sometimes a lot of the times we're stuck in our ways because of the culture around us and what we're used to and it's comfortable and it's easy looking at change and making decision that's different is scary and sometimes you you know you would have experienced as well when you start talking health and safety sometimes there's the eye rolling there's Mm -hmm. a collective sigh and all that sort of stuff but if you give them something relevant and maybe bring it from a different perspective. Like when I was a fleet aviation safety officer, we were used to have safety days every year mm-hmm. and they were pretty, let's face it, mundane. They were, you know, so they'd force some young sailor or someone to stand up in front of someone and present who wasn't, they're not practised at presenting. It's a daunting audience. They've got five to 600 people in front of them, their peers, and that's hard. Mm. So... When I was speaking, I said, we need to look at this differently because people are trying to avoid going. We want people to want to come. So I convinced them to spend a bit of money and we got professionals in. We got people with lived experience in. We mm-hmm. got professional speakers to come in who would tie into the message or the topic we were after. And the safety days changed to the point where people would ring up from other areas and say, we want to come. I go, sorry, there's no seats left. Um, because the thing... Yeah, and the thing is, is that what it meant was, is I measured the success by then six months later, people were still talking about the topics and the information they got, whether it was about psychosocial or mental health or basic safety or risk management. If you get someone engaging and passionate about it, and that's the same, if someone's stuck in their ways, if you get people feed off other people's passion. If you're passionate about something, sometimes it's hard for them not to change or at least be curious about why you're so passionate about it why you so want them to change and it's about respecting their opinion as well and then the more you respect their opinion of where they're at often they then respect you more and they will then start to change and start to realize that there is some positivity about it because and if you can show the effectiveness of it and you can show the benefits of that change then usually they will come around. And especially if you can make the change in their mind not embarrassing, not humiliating, that it becomes and you make it their idea, the change becomes their idea. 100%. You're forcing them anymore. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Actually, you just reminded me, I had a conversation with some senior level leaders the other day about, oh, we want to make, you know, safety fun and engaging. And, you know, we've tried all these ideas and we just don't understand like why the workforce is not, you know, picking up what we've taken back. So we, we're going to go back to paperwork. We're just going to read out a toolbox talk at the beginning of a meeting. And I just sat there and I thought, I said, guys, have you actually thought about asking your frontline, like what they think is like fun and exciting? And they both kind of like looked at me like, did she just like, <laughs> like, what did she just say? Like I had sworn or something at them. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's the key, right? Like there's no point you telling them or you dictating to them, you know, a process or something that you think is going to be best. 
100% we can get our ideas across, but you want them to feel like it's their idea. I said, even if it's not, right? Like you still want the the front line to come up with it. And there might be something fantastic like a podcast yeah. or, a, I don't know, scan a QR code and it goes to a holographic video of Tupac. I don't know, but there could be <laughs> some really innovative ways that you haven't yep. thought of because, I mean, you thought you were the expert, but realistically, it's it's in your front line, right? Like the people are that solution. They're the ones that know the work, you know, do the work. So maybe ask them. <laughs> Don't ask And, and it comes That's down to that. Yeah. yeah, it comes down to that thing of knowing your people, knowing what they like. Because, you know, and you'll experience this like I've, you know, I've got young kids as well. And that thing where you go, no, this has got to be fun. I've yeah. got to enjoy it. And they're like, it sucks, Mum. I hate it. It's fun for you, like, no. And you're like, you're like and then you sit there and look at them and go, actually, for you, it's probably not fun. And, yeah. and to understand that. And, you know, we, we do it all the time with workforces, like especially senior leadership. They think, oh, this is going to work. This is going to be amazing. We're going to love yeah. it. Yeah. They love it, but the guy on the ground is just going, oh, my God, I'm so far behind my work now. Yeah, yeah. And they're not, my time. they're not in the moment. They're thinking about all the stuff they need to do. And yeah. um, and it's about, you know, either asking them, getting that feedback, or when you do have to have something to deliver, actually ensuring that their timeline stops as well as part yeah. of it. So, you know, they, they don't have to think about the next stuff and don't think about now they're behind work and stuff yeah. like that. No, that's true. There is a lot of consideration that has to go into it. And I guess that's a nice segue consideration into, you know, if you had all the money and all the resources and you could be as controversial as you wanted, um, what would you invent to solve a workplace, you know, health and safety issue and why would you invent it? Um, I don't know if mine's much an invention, but I think it, well, maybe it is. Maybe it's something that we could attach to people's heads. So you you could see what is influencing their decisions so like you can because whenever somebody makes a decision particularly when it comes to health safety and you watch you 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 know you might even read a work safe report and you you can't help yourself going what an idiot you know when you read it because someone's been injured and you're going how did you let that happen Mm -hmm. how how why would you do that that's dumb but then if we could have a tool that actually then scanned someone's brain and went, these are the things that made them made that decision, it would absolutely completely reduce those incidents from rehappening because we'd all of a sudden have a much better understanding of why that happened. Um, you know, and it goes beyond because, you know, you look at engineering in, uh, mistakes or even with something in the car, you look at a car accident. Like I, I remember driving along the highway up to Sydney, driving past, and the traffic had all banked up because there'd been an accident. There was a van upside down on the concrete medium strip between the two lanes of traffic. Okay. It was a sunny day. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. It had only recently happened. And I'm like, how? How does that actually happen? Like how do you get to a position that you're going either that fast or you lose that much control that you manage to f- flip a van on top of a concrete barrier and you know we don't look at traffic accidents and understand why we look at how it happened and therefore who was the the, who was the cause but we never look at why like what was the influence in their behaviors and what happened yeah and how it changed and I think if we had a machine or something that even post, you know, even if it's a fatal, if they could scan someone's head afterwards to see those immediate thoughts prior to that event, 
Yeah. To see what impacted and made them make that decision to do that or behave that way, we could then find solutions to so many of the injuries. And it could go to politics and war and the whole works as well. Like just... Yeah, I'm not sure you want to scan some politicians' heads, though. No, I know. Well, that could be scary. (laughs) Practically, I mean, it has legs, you know, from a practical (laughs) kind of standpoint. Practically, on the other hand, there may be some blockers you may need to put in place for, yeah. But it could, you know, it it would do a whole lot of things. It would people make people feel potentially safer at work. It would, you know, it made people have maybe have a look at their own biases and their own opinions because you'd be able to see them. That and if you've got a little readout on your phone that had an alert saying you have got an unconscious bias against this person, like, oh, do I? Okay, I'll better put that yeah. away. But um, That's definitely interesting. Although you may put incident investigators out of a job, right? Because yeah, technically, no. you know, like Bob, you know, Edwards and Andrea Baker say that the whole thing, you do an investigation is to understand that context and you don't stop asking questions until you, you get, you know, the tools they were yeah. using and the decisions they made. When you understand that, that's when you've done a thorough investigation that you too would make that same decision. So, yeah. I mean, that gives you the answer within like, I don't know, however long your time frame is for scanning someone's head, you would have that answer as to what led them to act the way they did. But then there'd be a whole world of jobs out there for people to operate the scanner and all that sort yeah, of stuff yeah, and actually course. interpret the data that comes out to go, well, how much of an influence was that? But I just think, and yeah. you could actually use it to teach kids about those things that impact their decisions. Like we could start at an, an early age about teaching kids what's a good idea and not. Should I get into the car with my friend who's just got their P-Pates license at yeah. 10 o'clock at night after we've been to a party or whatever? You know, they actually go, or maybe the alternative is to be a more proactive approach instead of reactive. Is it is it provides you the potential consequences of a decision? Like you type in your decision and all the consequences pop out. <laughs> I wonder how that how effective that would be. You know, like just because you no. tell someone, um, P.S. If you climb the outside of this building, you know the whatever it's called in Dubai, we all know. And I was watching a doco the other day on some gentleman that did lose his life doing like base jumping or something like mm. that. And I think it's, it's easy enough for me to say like, you know, when I do not understand the decision-making process, why you would climb yeah. a perfectly nice building with a perfectly great elevator system that's perfectly <laughs> safe. Why do you need to go on the outside of that, right? But, but telling him, hey, mate, do you realise jumping out of the plane, like the consequences of if you fall, like I think from a behavioural safety perspective, yeah. we've seen that as potentially not being effective. You know, no, like showing someone the con, showing yeah, them, you know, like all of that doesn't. It comes down to I think understanding calculated risk. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So like you, it could, it, it might not stop someone doing it, but it provides them with a calculated risk. Yeah. And it could provide you know young young builders and stuff that jump yeah. up with no shirts on, no hat, out in the sun all day, a calculated risk of your chance of getting a melanoma. Yeah. And an educated one too. Yeah, you know, it provides education and awareness. But anyway, that that would Sorry, be something that I didn't argue about your, uh, you know, item of <laughs> what you would invent. Let's go to a philosophical, the last question here around, you know, you've had an amazing, you know, career and, uh, you know, a momentous one as well, uh, you know. Um, Thank you. What would you what would you say to yourself if you could go back to your younger years? And I I know you know being that the the first female you know that you were you would have had some very fantastic experiences and some really perhaps 
traumatic even ones. So if you could go back and give yourself some words of wisdom to help you get to, you know, Nellie Johnson and where you are today in life, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to to be courageous and to not try so hard to be one of the boys, to to not change my behaviours and my thoughts and the way I react to things and the things that I do to be accepted, to be happy with being different, to mm-hmm. be, you know, and be happy with standing out because I spend a lot of my time trying not to stand out. So I, yeah. you know, did my best to fit in, be liked and all that sort of stuff. And I think it, it would have been better. It took me a long time to realise that actually that's detrimental because, because A, I'm not, I, my behaviours were, you know, I was a very young sort of per- person in the military back then, like, and I think my behaviours were were not great. Like I joined in with the mob mentality, which was terrible, um, just to save myself. So I wasn't the target, you know, for a change. Yeah. So it was about more about survival, survivability, I'm not proud of it, but it's, and also just a bunch of those things. And if I'd stood up for myself and part of that is just be, and I'm really proud now, though, my niece who had a bit of a not great experience on the CBH, which is a grain bins in Western Australia with yep. a couple of managers, and how things have changed. Sort of back when when I was doing that sort of stuff, my friends were, we just put up with it. Yeah. Um, she has actually, she's actually flagged it. And the response wasn't good enough for my immediate boss, so she went up the chain and said, this is not but- good enough. Yeah. And I just think that changed. And I, I would, you know, I wish my younger self would have had that courage to saying that you can do this without having to change or be best friends with everybody or be one of the mob and one of the boys. Be happy to be different. Be happy to think differently. Be happy to act differently. And, you know, be confident that that doesn't actually impact your ability or your competence in being the trade or whatever person you are so for me being a pilot because doing that wouldn't have changed my competence it actually probably would have improved my confidence yeah I was going to say that's probably the thing that ties in with that hey if you're able to stand out from the crowd the confidence you know component is what may have gone up or down depending on your treatment hey like how people would have reacted to you standing out on a limb and calling out those behaviors that you may have witnessed or been a part of potentially yeah, and I think, you know, and in the end, after a, a few years and after sort of going through it and being a bit more true to myself, I, I think I gained more respect and I gained more respect as a leader because then I was able to understand and call it out for them and support other people when that happened. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's really tough though when you're very, you know, in your late teens, early 20s and stuff trying to find your way in the world and, you know, I came from a fairly... and you know, no social media and internet and all that sort of stuff when I grew up. So we were a much more naive generation when it came to stuff like that and what what things like, you know, sexism and misogyny and all that sort of stuff, what that meant. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really know those words or understand them until I was a lot older, whereas I think kids, either, so my kids are much more aware of it just because it's yeah. open and out there a bit more. Yeah, no, that's for sure. And I guess, you know, you've given us a couple of insights from you know, your time in aviation specifically. Um, And then, you know, normally at this point in the podcast, I kind of say, do you have any other insights or any valuable lessons or things you would like to share with my listeners, you know, from your career or some of those experiences that perhaps you've you've been through? 
Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I would like to say is I, I've had, I did have a mixed experience in defence. Like it, it, I, there's actually some stuff that my mum talked to me about that I can't remember happening. Like it's bad. Oh, wow. Like I can't okay. remember. Like yeah, she, right. You know, she flew over to make sure I didn't leave and all this sort of stuff. So oh, wow. I don't remember that at all. Um, so it's interesting that things that we block out that yeah. we don't want to see. But, you know, I had a mixed experience. Things have changed. But I would actually say to anyone that, if you've got kids or you're interested or people are out there is actually defense is a not a bad start if you're not sure about what you want to do there are options out there because it does give you it's the only it's a weird organization because it's the only organization that brings you in with no experience teaches you everything you need to know about the particular subject area you want to study or do um even in the safety world as well now like work health and safety and aviation safety is quite big Okay. across defence, including um, investigations. They're bringing in landworthiness as well for investigations mm-hmm. in Army. Um, and and then, you know, it gives you some experience after teaching you that. So you've got zero experience. They give you experience and then they let you leave and that entire time they pay you. So it seems insane compared mm-hmm. to civil industry. Um, but the other thing I think, you know, from my experience is also to remember that there are so many transferable skills when you're doing our job. Like that's something I've learnt probably in the last few years is that a lot of the stuff I've learned through my aviation career and the experiences I had, like they were amazing. I got to fly, you know, multi-million dollar helicopters off the back of the ship in charge of 20 plus people <laughs> and they were my yeah. aircraft. So I, you know, I yeah, got to say cool. what they did, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then, but then, you know, and you come back and I go, oh, all I've got, all I can do is fly. What happens if I don't fly? But actually, yeah. it turns out I'm a re- I'm a quite a good typist. I'm actually <laughs> and the stuff, you know, just little things. Like yeah. I'm really actually good at word processing and basic stuff like that. I'm a good researcher. Um, and when it comes to the decision making, the stuff that we learn in that space, like it's just bringing all together all the human factors things that we've learned from aviation. And I just now feel like they've got so much to offer businesses and in the safety world as well as outside to improve you know the way and it comes back down to that decision making stuff the way they make decisions how they do it to not only improve you know workforce efficiency overall safety and their general workplace well-being because you understand your people you go back to understanding your people and and but it is one thing I found as well it is very daunting going from 20 odd years in the military and going out on your own I feel like I've run at a cliff and just jump off and then (laughs) still kind of floating on the way down you know like people know who you are they they know those you know things those inspirational things that you've done you know throughout your career as well and the other thing is like your you know humbleness and your humility to call out those things that you're not so proud of as well um (laughs) You know, like I think we do often kind of pigeonhole, you know, people who've been in the defense force as a certain type of personality or those are the only skills, you know, like you called it out there, like pilot, for example, you're like, well, what do you do when you can't fly, like when you can't fly planes anymore, yeah. let alone when you physically make the decision that you don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. So it's interesting, I guess, that message there again around, you know, like if, if you are someone who's come from, you know, even if it isn't just the defense force, but a career where it is very niche, you know, orientated 
to kind of really take some time to reassess, you know, what are those transferable skills and then be able to fight for them, you know, for jobs where you might not might not have everything on that job description or like you to jump off a cliff, so to speak, <laughs> from an analogy. And hopefully there are some controls in place from a safety perspective. <laughs> but to take that leap and kind of put yourself out there from a consulting perspective, yeah. which in itself is huge to be a, a consultant and have to find work and, you know, develop that momentum that you don't, especially... For one thing I understand from military is that and defense force in general, it is a protected environment, right? Like it's 100% not controlled in those war-torn environments, et cetera, while you're in the sky. But at the end of the day, you have a network. And realistically, mm. I've seen, you know, ex-SAS people who've come and become health and safety professionals, and then they bring in other ex, you know, military mm. or, you know, Navy and Army, et cetera, because that's the people and those personalities that they feel like that brotherhood and that camaraderie with. Yeah. So I can imagine it's very daunting, like just assimilating, you know, back into (laughs) civilian life, but then recognising your skills. And I I think that's part of it as well. I think that comes from, and that's one thing, that reason why I left, it was still, um, defence is still lacking in a broader diversity. Like, and I think when you think differently or consider or want different things, there's not that avenue for that. There's still, it's very much a moulded, and I like the way you said, like a protected environment because you're very much, and and like attracts like, you know. Yeah, That's most why definitely. You don't join it, hey, like unless you think like that, like unless you like the structure and regiment and all those strengths yeah. that the Defence Force has going for it, unless you think you, if you're someone that likes, you know, like la-la land and, you know, thinking differently and, and not abiding by or complying all those traditional kind of structure, then why would you join unless you're Yeah, and you wouldn't, you like, wouldn't pass recruiting. Like you wouldn't oh, pass through right? recruiting if you're like that because yeah. they're very, you know, they have their little box of where you should fit in. And and it's nice to go outside and actually talk to different people uh, with different backgrounds, yeah. um, you know, different beliefs, different thought processes because that I find that that diversity is is really refreshing and the different perspectives that different people bring yeah, it's really lovely because, you know, there's a whole lot of us here in the health and safety world but we all do think differently like and I love your safety differently stuff because it it is it's about thinking differently about considering things from a different angle from a different viewpoint Mm. and and it's the only way I think we can actually improve health and safety across the board because we have to stop thinking down a one track down a this is the fix because often the fix these days doesn't work because you know for a whole bunch of different reasons depending on where you are but we have to really start to embrace that diversity and bring it across and you know that's part of what I do as well is I'm part of Women in Aviation Australian chapter to try and bring diversity to the aviation industry because we're still a bit thin on the ground for anyone other than Caucasian males unfortunately (laughs) they're all I mean a lot of the guys are amazing like so I'm not saying that they're all we've got some amazing champions in the field that are just brilliant but it is about bringing more diversity in from different backgrounds and different genders and everything so yeah so that's probably me of left it on a very nice note actually that diversity and inclusion piece that we want all organizations regardless of their internal structure to kind of think about and not just think of it as a quota either but Mm. from that perspectives right like I don't just want a woman on my board I want to have that diverse perspective and that diverse perspective may be transgender or it may be you know like you know a a woman or a man It, it might just be that differing opinion 
to play devil's advocate when we're all like, yeah, sure, we're all going to go with this project for someone to go, have we thought about <laughs> doing it this way? Yeah, it's like it could mean from someone like if you get everyone in your board is from the city, actually get someone from the yeah. country to come and have yeah. a different perspective. Like, you know, someone yeah. who's dealt with floods and fires and stuff that aren't in yeah, a controlled right. environment, and, you know, and I think it does. It's a perfect point. Yeah, no, definitely. No, that's been fantastic. Natalie, thank you so much again for your time and sharing your opinions and insights and exciting <laughs> ideas for brain scanning of politicians. <laughs> We're definitely not going to be endorsing, um, but it's been fantastic to talk to you again. Um, so, yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, and Good luck with the rest of the year. So that was my chat with Natalie Johnston. How freaking awesome is she? I found it really interesting to hear Natalie's reflection on not trying so hard to fit into those male-dominated environments and industries. It's such a tough position to be in, and her comments resonated with me and perhaps will for a few of you out there as well, because they're not exclusively applicable to just females changing behaviour to be seen as one of the guys. I mean, after all, it is how I made an impact earlier on in my career. I certainly wouldn't say that I changed who I was or anything serious like that, but I definitely did change things like the way that I spoke, especially when I was out on site. I changed what I wore to ensure even as a safety professional that I didn't stand out from the workers. I even changed things like where I ate and how I had my office set up. Interestingly, those changes got me greater respect and helped me build rapport with the front line. I think the flip side, and Natalie does go on to mention this, is to make an impact. We really need to be strong enough and courageous enough to stand out from the crowd. I shall let you in on a literal thing that I used to do with a few other ladies as a consultant. I would attend the major contractors association events. The association is made up of all the major construction contractors in Queensland. And at their events, the breakdown of men to women is normally about 90% men and about 10% women. So I would turn up, often on my own, and seek out the other women in the room. It wasn't hard because at these events, it would be a sea of men in navy suits, so a woman usually did stand out. But I wanted to stretch this even further. And so, after making acquaintances with a few other women attendees, we made a pact that we would all wear the brightest, most feminine outfits we had to these events. I'm talking, I wore a neon pink pantsuit. Another lady wore a lime green jacket. It was just the most wonderful things you could ever see. The flip side to the literal pop of colour and standing out from the crowd were some of those not-so-fun experiences that I've obviously experienced to date. Like the colleague who kept asking me to get his cups of tea and write his notes for him, or the colleague who would call me up after hours intoxicated and threaten me with my job or being told I was too pretty to work in the mining industry and having to share one woman's shirt amongst six other females on site, or being made to feel like I'm a bad mother and a bad wife for not taking maternity leave, or for working in general, or for doing what I love. But here's the thing, right? Yes, I've had some crappy experiences, and as you heard, so did Nat, and so will have most of you who listen to this. However, I am going to say something that probably won't get me invited to any special Women's Day functions ever again. I don't believe in having quotas for the amount of women on staff or the amount of women on the executive team. I don't believe in lowering entry-level benchmarks to allow women over the line. I know there are a number of large organisations that do this. I want to be treated equally and paid equally but only if it is based on merit, 
not if it is based on the chromosomes I have or don't have. If I cannot physically perform to the standard of the men on my crew, then I don't think that I should be paid the same as the men on my crew. I don't believe in calling out associations or groups for only women in certain professions, like construction or safety, because I don't want to be segregated or treated any differently. In 2024, for me, it's not about women in safety or women in engineering or women in construction. Don't get me wrong, we definitely do need diverse perspectives, but what we really actually need is inclusivity in the workplace, and that's regardless of whether you identify as a woman, a man, non-binary, transgender, etc. So this week, you should celebrate the fantastically fierce women in your life, but you should also celebrate the fierce other people in your life who aren't afraid to challenge the status quo who aren't afraid to speak out loud, who might say no instead of yes, or how instead of why, or those who help you to be better, happier, stronger, or even more inspired. That's all for me from now. Until next time, stay safe.